0: And then I kept running into things in my research that led me, kept leading me back to who this character could be.
1: Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am pleased to be joined by Liza Nash Taylor, author of the novel In All Good Faith.
0: But I started this novel, and I started, um, I, I just became uh, invested in it and thinking, I don't, I'm not very good at this, but I want to learn how to do this.
1: Liza Nash Taylor lives at historic Keswick Farm in Keswick, Virginia, with her family and dogs. The farm, which was built in 1825, is the setting for both her novels, Etiquette for Runaways, and her latest *In all good faith. After receiving a BA in Fine Art from Mary Baldwin College and working in the fashion industry, in 2018 Taylor completed the MFA program at Vermont College of Fine Art and was named a Hawthorne International Fellow. In 2016, she was the winner of the San Miguel Writers' Conference Fiction Prize. Her short stories have appeared in Mitochondria Two, an anthology by the Harvard Bookstore, Gargoyle Magazine, and others. Today, I'll be talking to her about her novel, In All Good Faith. So first, I'd like to ask you about America in 1932. We, we all know about the Great Depression, but can you talk a little bit about the specific issues that Americans were facing in 1932?
0: Sure. Uh, When I, I I knew in starting this story that I wanted to continue um, the story of my main character from my first book. And that first book was set in 1925. I wanted to continue Mae Marshall's story during the Great Depression. So I chose, I, I knew that the depression, you know, I had a 10 year period basically to work in and I had to narrow down what year I would start. Um, and both books are set in the old farmhouse where I live in Virginia, where I'm sitting right now. So uh, I knew I wanted the Great Depression and I couldn't decide on a, on which year to start the book. So I started doing research on this area in Virginia during the depression. And I came across uh, records of an event from the summer of 1932 that I had never heard of before, and it hadn't been taught to me in school. And it was it's the Veterans' Bonus March. Um, and I, have you ever heard about that?
1: No, I haven't heard of that. Can you tell us about it?
0: Sure. Um, so in 1932 in May there was there was a group of eight World War One veterans, and of course we're in the depths of the Great Depression. They left. Oregon. And they were all destitute. They were determined to walk or hitchhike or ride the rails across the country with the goal of meeting with President Hoover. And they wanted to talk to Hoover to ask him to pay their war bonuses early. And these were certificates that were given to soldiers that were slated to be paid in 1945, sort of like a a war bond. Uh, And so they made their way across the country, and they gathered tremendous support, and the press started following them. And by the time they got to Washington, there were, I don't know, a thousand of them. And by July of 1932, there were 20,000 veterans camping in and around Washington, D.C., and many had brought their Families with them, and they camped along the riverbanks, and they camped in partially demolished office buildings. And through this summer, Hoover refused to meet with any of them. Uh, so that event, to me, I thought it was really interesting. Um, and it didn't end well. At the end of July, after a bill being proposed and and voted down. Um, The veterans stayed on. A lot of them stayed on because they had nowhere to go. And then at the end of July, Hoover sent Douglas MacArthur in with tear gas and tanks to clear these camps in one night. And they did. So my story, the the, the plot of the novel of In All Good Faith, imagines taking a 17-year-old girl who has anxiety issues and plonking her down in the middle of this bonus march and then she separated from her father, and we see what happens. So it's a dual narrative, um, continuing May Marshall's story in Virginia, and then the secondary character Dorit Sykes, is 17. She's from Boston. She goes with her father to the Bonus March, and uh, then they will connect. Their lives will intersect and affect each other. So that was that was basically once I found that event that really became this the centerpiece of the whole plot. Um, I did a lot of other research, of course, on the area and on the depression, but it was that one event that really sparked to me um, what would be the whole story.
1: I can imagine that was shocking to learn about that. I'm just hearing you talk about that they cleared the camps with tear gas of, of veterans, no less. Um, yeah but I suppose we shouldn't be surprised considering the long history of uh, our our government's actions. Um, So yeah, that's, that's an an incredible little piece of history that that I'm not familiar with. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about Mae Marshall, your main character? I'm curious. um, She had quite an eventful life in, in your first novel etiquette for runaways. What's her new situation like and why did you decide to continue to tell her story?
0: Well um the 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 first book takes her in 1924 from her home at Keswick Farm in rural Virginia which is where I'm sitting right now to Prohibition era New York when her father who's a moonshiner is arrested and from there she meets a, in New York she meets a character who is loosely based on Josephine Baker the great um the great entertainer and in my plot, May goes with this character, Janie, based on Josephine Baker, to Jazz Age Paris, where uh, the troupe she goes with all become very famous and successful, and she really hits the skids. So the, the first book, uh, Etiquette for Runaways, leaves May in Paris in 1926, having made a spectacular mess of her life. But we know she's on the right path, and she's going to um, redeem herself, so I pick up with her in in all good faith, six years later, she is now a young mother married back at the farm where she grew up in Virginia, and she's trying to help her family and her family's business get through the depression and her family's business is a country market that her father runs, and they also have a canning operation and an orchard and her idea is to shift uh, their production from fruit and canning because there've been all these horrible crop dilemmas and, and tornadoes and blights and insect infestations to switch it to candy production because uh, that was another thing that I was so excited when I, uh, when I was doing my research, the history of candy making because in the early 30s, the production methods first came about where they were able to make candy bars with fillings or layers. You know, before then they only had Hershey bars, one, one, one ingredient. And now all of a sudden they came up with the machinery to do things like, um, like Mars bars and, and things that uh, had sticky fillings or were layered, whatever. And during the depression, because everyone was so poor and many people didn't have cooking um, have any access to, to, to stoves or kitchens, they would buy candy because it was calorically dense and inexpensive. And for five cents, you could buy a candy bar that could get you through a good part of the day with enough nutrition. And there, they started marketing candy then um, as as being nutritious. There was one candy bar that was called Chicken Dinner. And it was called that not because it tasted like a chicken dinner but because it was supposedly as um as nutritious as a kitchen dinner and they they retrofitted trucks to drive around neighborhoods like an ice cream truck selling these candy bars for 5 cents. So her idea is to come up with a candy bar that will nourish a person for a whole day. She calls it a 3 square bar. So that's her that's her business idea and she She needs money, obviously, to carry this idea forward. And her father's against the idea, her husband's against the idea of of risking capital. Uh, But she goes ahead and finds a way to do it anyway. And it ends up being a success.
1: Well, that's really interesting to hear a little bit about the history of candy bars. And it sounds like you had fun researching it. (laughs) Yes. I have to tell you a little story about that. So I I am a relatively thin person, and I, I'm very active. And I one summer I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, and it's you're just hiking every day up and down mountains. And I was losing weight, and I couldn't, I couldn't keep enough weight on until I just started buying and eating king sized candy bars mm-hmm. because, as you say, they're calorically dense. And I mean that that's what saved me so that I could continue my hike. So that's that's pretty funny. Our perceptions of Candy bars have changed since then, but I, I can see why they, they marketed them that, that way.
0: Yes. Yes. It was a big thing.
1: Uh, well, tell us about Dorit Sykes a little bit more. I know you mentioned her already. Why did you insert her into, into May's story the way you did?
0: Well, this I started out only intending to continue May's story into the Great Depression. And I have never had this experience as a writer, but um, I've heard of other authors saying that a character sprung fully formed into their head. And I sort sort of said, yeah, woo-woo, sure. But then that happened to me with Dorit. She sort of came knocking around in my head and I thought, well, I'll put you in a story or something, somewhere, and she would not go away. And then I kept running into things in... My research that led me, kept leading me back to who this character could be. Um, the bonus march took me there. And so finally, I started sort of listening to her. And I knew that there was something very Dickensian about her. So I decided to give her a name. And I named her Dorrit Sykes. Dorit from Little Dorrit and Sykes from Bill Sykes from Oliver Twist. And as soon as I gave her a name, she really started talking to me. So I know that sounds weird, but it's true. So uh, I knew she was a teenager and somehow I knew she was from Boston. So on a whim, I took a trip to Boston with no itinerary in 2016. And I just decided I would wander around and look for clues and I found them. I went to the Boston Public Library which ended up being really a huge part of her story. And then once I found out about the bonus march, which was actually after I had decided she was going to be part of this dual narrative, um, then her character really fleshed out because I knew she had been to the bonus march with her father and I could start, I sort of went backwards writing her background uh, and that I knew she had, a disability, and it turns out that it was anxiety, which is something I deal with a lot. Um, But And once I gave her this anxiety disorder and panic attacks, she really, really came to life. So she just sort of made a place for herself in this story. Uh, And about halfway through, I didn't know when they would meet or why they would meet, but she and May meet each other when she leaves the bonus march and rides the rails and ends up in Keswick, Virginia. Um, and from there on, they their stories mesh together.
1: Well, that doesn't sound weird at all. Uh, I talk to <laughs> a lot of authors and, the, and they have similar experiences. I, I'd say it's just a, a fortunate one, really, to have a character come to life for you like that.
0: It is. I've never had it happen, and it hasn't happened since. I wish it would happen with the novel I'm working on now.
1: Well, maybe as you, as you keep working on it, someone will, will appear. Uh, tell us about Keswick Farm, where you are now. You have this unique um, setting that you know, you're know you writing about the place where you live. Um, can you give us a little bit of the history of it and why you decided to incorporate it into your novels?
0: Sure, and I started writing in about 2013. I took a a writing class when my daughter uh, went away to school, and I was an empty nester, and I had some time. And uh, I, I was. It was a novel writing class. I had to pick a setting, and I thought, well, um, I'll just set it right here because the house where I live was built about 1825, and it was never. a grand house at all. It was a simple farmhouse. But I started thinking, um, I know this house has history. I don't know a lot of its specific history, but I started thinking, what would be, what would have been a really interesting time to live in this house in Albemarle County, Virginia? And it didn't take long for me to decide that prohibition, that that, that, uh, that would be a really interesting time because there was a lot of moonshining going on in Albemarle County and Franklin County, which is two hours away, uh, that was called the Moonshine Capital of the World in during Prohibition. and so uh, and, and and the the whole plot of my first book, Etiquette for Runaways is based on a trial that happened there that was the largest trial in Virginia's history. It was called the Great Moonshine Conspiracy Trial, and there were there was a ring of crooked officials and sheriffs operating in Franklin County that were uh, that were shaking down small time moonshiners for kickback, and saying that they would keep them out of jail. When in fact, the governor of Virginia had told all of these officials, "Lay off the little guys. The jails are too full. The courts are too full. We're only going after the really big." Moonshiners. Well, these crooked sheriffs kept going, you know, hitting up the little guys. So, um, so that whole actual historical event tied into the plot of the first book. So, um, anyway, the area where I live is rural and very pretty, and there are orchards and uh, the little country market that is featured in both books and the post office, those I can see the post office from where I'm sitting right now. So it was very easy to write about um, the Southwest mountains that I see out my back door and, and, and to, to describe as a new writer, the, the sense of this place and, uh, you know, what the sunset looks like. So it, it was a little bit of a cheat, because I could just look around me and describe where I was sitting and living.
1: Yeah. And you call it an introvert's heaven, which has sounds so lovely to me.
0: That's true. It is. And I've gotten to be worse because now that I, uh, now that I'm an author, I have an excuse to, uh, to tell people I'm not leaving the house for the next week or whatever. Um, yeah, it is an introvert's heaven being here.
1: Is it a working farm? Are you doing any kind of farm labor?
0: No, it it was a big dairy farm at one point. It um it I don't know what the acreage was, maybe 500. But over time uh portions of the property were sold off and when my husband and I bought it about 25 years ago, it was down to 7 acres and the farmhouse. So, but we're lucky because we're sort of a postage stamp in the corner of a very large working farm. So right over my fence, I get to look at my neighbor's cows and the mountains and, uh, and a beautiful view that I don't have to maintain. So it's, it's pretty sweet.
1: Have you rented it out as an Airbnb?
0: No, you know, we have a cottage on the property and, uh, I I just haven't done that because I have three dogs. And if anyone stayed here, they would have to really be dog people. So uh, no, I haven't tried that yet.
1: Sure. That might be something you'll have to do because I'm ready to come visit.
0: Uh, (laughs) Great. Come stay in the cottage.
1: Hey, this is Colin Mustful, the founder and editor of History Through Fiction and the host of the podcast. I just wanted to take a quick break to tell you about a thrilling tale of espionage, music, and revolution. It's called The Education of Delorme Chopin, Sand, and La France by Nancy Burkhalter, and it's a fantastic historical novel set within the political upheaval of the 1848 French Revolution. The story follows piano tuner Bilo Delome as he gets wrapped up in a royal spy ring. The author, Nancy Burkhalter, is a piano tuner herself, and she has some really wonderful descriptions about Frédéric Chopin, his music, and the intricacies of piano tuning. The novel also includes the strong, vibrant personalities of French novelist Georges Sand and the criminal-turned-criminologist Eugène-François Bidoc. I know you'll love it as much as I do, and that's why, right now, If you buy a copy from our online store, you can get $5 off using the promo code PODCAST. That's promo code PODCAST. Thank you so much for listening, and now please enjoy the rest of the interview. Let's talk about your background. You started out in the the fashion industry. Can you tell us about about that?
0: Yes, I I'm a native Virginian and I grew up in Virginia Beach and went to college at what was then Mary Baldwin College, now Mary Baldwin University, in Stanton, Virginia. And all I really wanted to do was to get into the fashion industry. So uh, I went to I started graduate school in New York after finishing college uh, at the Fashion Institute of Technology. They had a one-year graduate program, and I I was studying tailoring. And I knew there was only one designer I wanted to work for, and that was Ralph Lauren. And before I finished that program, I was hired by Ralph Lauren. So I lived in New York. Uh, I lived in the rooming house that my character Mae lives in, in Etiquette for Runaway. She lives there in 1924. I lived there in 1981 when I was a student, and for $75 a week, we got a tiny room that was like a dorm room, and there were hall bathrooms, and you got two meals a day, and uh, young men were not allowed upstairs into your room at all. They could only visit in what we called the Bow Parlor. So it was uh, it was quite something, but my father felt good about me, me living there as a you know, 21 year old girl on my own going to, going to New York. So, um, so I, I got the job with Ralph Lauren, which was my dream job and I loved it, but it was extremely demanding. And, uh, I did it for about three years and then I had an opportunity to move to Nantucket Island with my then husband and open a store. So I did that, um, for seven years. So Little bit of different things. I, I never would have thought at 21 that I'd ever have published two novels. Um, it didn't even, it wasn't even on my radar.
1: How did you then transition into becoming a fiction novelist?
0: Well, when my, I, I worked, uh, I worked while my children were growing up and part time and, uh, and full time, and I did, I did creative things. I was a a photo stylist and I designed a line of baby clothes and things like that. Um, designed products and did display work, things like that. And then when my youngest went to boarding school, I decided I wanted to go back to school and study literature. So I started taking literature courses. And this was just when online learning was really Taking off, and I was so excited because I could take a class from Harvard, and I could go and take classes at my local community college, and I was sort of on fire with this idea of getting an English degree and and studying literature. And so, about my third semester in of of pursuing that, one of the classes that I uh, had a choice of taking was a novel writing course, and that was the one I was telling you about earlier where uh, we were supposed to start a novel and that was the first time I ever wrote anything um, creatively I mean other than like you know fourth grade really bad points and things like that but I started this novel and I started um, I, I just became uh, invested in it and thinking I don't I'm not very good at this but I want to learn how to do this and so I start I took more writing classes and uh, Signed up for an MFA program that I started at Vermont College of Fine Arts in 2016, low residency, finished in 2018. And about that same, well, as soon as I started that program, I signed with my first agent. I would finished my first manuscript. So it's just been, you know, laser focused sort of since that time.
1: Well, you're pretty good at it now. And you have several awards to back that up. Are you surprised by the success you've had? And um, was there ever a time where you thought maybe you you weren't going to figure out this the craft of of fiction? And maybe you made that that you might have made it the wrong choice?
0: Oh, sure. Yes. I mean, I've a lot of published authors I know um, suffer from imposter syndrome, and I know I do, um, worrying that, oh, it was a fluke, and, um, you know, this is not going to happen again, and then it did happen again. So um, I I just feel really grateful that I found something um, as an empty nester that really inspires me, and that I'm passionate about, and that you know, fills my day with inspiration of, of what I'm going to work on next. And I do feel so fortunate that I have had two books published. It, I tend to focus on, um, I think a lot of people do, on what I could do better. Um, you know, the next book, I want it to be better. I want it to sell more. I want it to not publish during a pandemic. Um, so, the, you know, there's always something to look ahead to, but I, I, um, I have been lucky. I've had some lucky breaks and, um, it's been, it's been a great journey so far.
1: Is there any advice or lessons that, that you've learned along the way that have really stuck out to you?
0: Um, well, you know, I was so late coming to this game. Um, so many people were born knowing they wanted to be a writer and, um, I would just encourage aspiring authors to uh, be tenacious to keep trying to you know it only takes one yes that's because i do a little seminar on on how to get an agent and stuff and to be tenacious to be open to criticism to get feedback wherever you can get it and and just don't give up
1: and can you tell us what you're working on now
0: sure I'm working on a third novel, a historical novel again, and this one is set in 1952, primarily in Paris. And for this one, I'm really calling on my fashion background. Um, the The actual historical event that is uh, that plays into this plot is the life and death of a French fashion designer named Jacques Fath, And he was at his he was at the height of his career in the early 1950s, along with Christian Dior and Pierre Balmain. The three of them in Paris were just a triumvirate. And Dior, of course, had just launched the, his new look. Uh, it was a big time in fashion. And Jacques Fat, at the age of 42, died of leukemia. And uh, and his he asked his wife to. Continue to keep the the house open, and he did three seasons of sketches for lines to be produced after his death. And she did; she honored his promise. She kept it going, but it after three years it failed. And he was quite a bon vivant. He was a he was an electric person. He um, he was handsome and charming, and they threw these huge parties at their chateau. So my story imagines taking a young woman who grew up in Virginia, not in my house, but in Virginia, who ends up in, in Paris and she becomes his muse and his, his a model and his muse. And she goes through this time of, uh, of his death and his wife making this promise. So it's about loyalty and, um, and a coming of age story actually.
1: Well, it sounds fascinating, and um, hearing you talk about it actually reminds me of something I, I did want to ask. Um, going back to May, the character in In All Good Faith, and etiquette for Runaways, um, you know, you talked about. Well, she lives at Keswick Farms, and then she lives in the the dorm where you once lived. Um, is does any b- bit of May, or you know, these stories? Now you're you're talking about the fashion industry in Paris do you see yourself represented in, in that? Do you, do you use, um, obviously you use your own experience, but is part of you, do you think in these characters and settings?
0: That's a good question. I would say yes. Uh, not, they're certainly not modeled on things specifically I've done in my life, but I like to, um, I like to think that, all of us have what I call an emotional file cabinet where we have memories of like our first heartbreak or the the most embarrassing or humiliating thing that ever happened or the first time we got fired, all those things. So that's what I what I draw upon when I'm trying to um, to write my characters emotions and and how it feels to go through um, finding out your boyfriend's cheating on you, things like that. Um, I think a lot of writers do that. But uh, so, yes, I am calling up my own sort of emotional memories, but they aren't, but my characters aren't doing specifically things that I ever did.
1: I think that's a great way to think about it, an emotional file cabinet. You can just refer to the files when it's time to, Getting an emotion in there and we know how important emotion is to storytelling well thank you Liza so much for joining me congratulations on all your success and um, I've had just a great time talking to you
0: thank you Colin thank you so much for inviting me to be with you today and good luck with your marathon thank you And it was it's the Veterans Bonus March. Um, and I, have you ever heard about that?
1: Sorry, I was uh, it took me a second to uh, unmute my mic and I can edit that. Um, okay. So, yeah, I'll, I'll answer your question here. Okay. Uh, no, no, I haven't heard of that. Can you tell us about it?